Why don't you stand your feet with me? We're gonna read and honor God's word together in the room, online, in Guyana. We're in a series called Living on Purpose. Everybody say purpose. Living on purpose. We're, we're, we're working off the premise that we have all been created with divine intentionality, that each one of us have unique gifts and callings and sort of working off of this premise of what if we not simply relegated our lives to wandering or meandering through life, but what if we tapped into divine clarity to live our life on purpose? Wouldn't that be nice? All one of y'all. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad, Angel. That would be nice. That's cool. We'll just have a conversation here, and that'll be great. Um, I am a talkback preacher, by the way. So if you yell at me and say, preach it, amen, hallelujah, preach it, white boy, I don't care what you say. Just say something. I'm going to feel good, okay? Last week, it was about our primary purpose, which is to love God and to be his witnesses, that filled with the compassion of Jesus and the heart of Jesus for people, we move out to share good news with those that he loves with our world. This week... If we talked last week about our general primary purpose, this week I want to dialogue about the specific and unique purpose that God has placed on the inside of each one of you. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're unique. And I mean that in a good way. You got to clarify sometimes. In a good way, specific and unique. This week I want to talk from the premise of living in your divine design. So if you have a Bible, flip to Ephesians chapter 2. You're like, how long am I going to stand for? Listen, I got to stand up here for 35 minutes so you can get a little bit of steps on your Fitbit, Okay. You're about to sit down. Ephesians 2, if you're ready, say preach. preach. I will. Verse 10. For we are, everybody say we. we. Who? Humans. We. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Mom, did you know I was preaching about that? I probably should have told you. But that's a good sign. That's a good sign. Okay, there we go. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Jesus, speak to our hearts. Remind us of who you've created us to be. And Lord, we pray that in two weeks, you would help the lowly Miami Dolphins defeat the evil empire, the New England Patriots. And all God's people said, in Jesus' name, amen. Come on, somebody. Give your neighbor a high five. You can find your seat. It says pray without ceasing. Y'all can't say I'm not spiritual. I'm just being biblical, okay? Take it up with God. Anybody here competitive? Show of hands. Show of hands. Some of your hands shot way up. Like, real quick. You look at your neighbor, you're like, raise your hand higher than them. Uh, competition can be exciting. Competition can be exhilarating. And competition sometimes can be absolutely disastrous. Can I get an Amen. I remember a few years ago, uh, at the greenhouse, we're a family of church planting churches throughout the state of Florida and now Guyana as well. Shout out to the Guyana crew back there. And uh, we, we sort of like, we have this culture that we, we generally abide by. We like to pray hard, meaning we take God for real and we love Jesus and we're passionate about Jesus and faith. And we play hard, meaning we don't take ourselves too seriously and we like to have fun together. And so one staff retreat gathered with our staff members from the, our churches across the state, our family of churches across the state, we decided we would have a staff Olympics. Now this sounded great in theory. We had multiple iterations. It was sort of like this, this team uh, triathlon type deal where you had to do some running and then you had to do some something I think it was handstands or something ridiculous and then you had to swim across this flowing river now the swim did not seem too long and so I volunteered myself because I'm from South Florida and I like the water and I'm like we could do this the swim was about a football field so I'm like we, you had to swim there and swim back and I was like I got this 
So I thought. So we get ready, we do this thing, it comes up to the time to swim, and it's myself, and it's Troy, who was our pastor in Orlando, and it was Jason, who was the, pa the kids pastor in Gainesville, and so we go, our team tags us, and we jump in, and we're off, and we start swimming, and I'm doing okay, Jason is just gone, though, like, Jason's, like, all the way towards the other side, and, and he gets ready, he turns back around, he kind of makes a loop, now, what I did not realize is that while there was a distance to the swim, there was also a current to the river, and what that meant is that the swim distance was actually like double because you're fighting against the current to go upstream and you're fighting to get there. And so I get to the turn and I turn around and I'm in like last place and I realize if I don't slow down, I might go down. Like, and I'm competitive and I like to win, but I like to live more. And so I'm like, I, so I just straight, I just, I'm like, I'm going to go ahead and lose this race and, and save my life. And so I start doing the backstroke. I flip over. I'm like, I'm just chilling. Troy, who was the Orlando guy, was a little bit in front of me. Bless his heart. He was just going for it until he was not. And we were like, I don't know if he's going to. And so Jason goes all the way to the end and he fit, I mean, he smoked us destroyed us. He gets out of the water. He's kind of breathing a little heavy, to be fair, but he's kind of like, he, he's collecting himself. I make it to the other end, thank God, and I'm over vomiting in the bushes. And Troy, that, unfortunately, that is the truth. And Troy, we literally had to get out thermal blankets and wrap Troy in thermal blankets to keep him from going into shock. Needless to say, we have not done another Staff Olympics since then. <laughs> And everyone survived, but it was perplexing. I'm like, what in the world? And so I start asking questions to the unanimous victor, Jason. I was like, bro, you're like a beast, man. You're in crazy shape. He's like, well, I didn't tell anybody, but I actually was a lifeguard all through high school and college. And I was a competitive swimmer. I'm like, I hate you. <laughs> And I want to talk about this story. Ileana's over there laughing because she already knew where it was going to go. She's a competitive swimmer. She's like, oh, God bless your heart, Pastor John. You almost died. I, I, I want to use this story as an operating metaphor because it doesn't just pertain to staff shenanigans and marathons and swimming. And I want to talk about this idea when it comes to life. Because the reality is we all feel the pressure in life to compete and to compare. We all feel this pressure. We, there's an old term. It's called keeping up with the Joneses. How many of you heard this term before? I'll break it down if you don't know. Basically, the idea is we all feel this inclination in our human frame to try to keep up with whoever's around us and, and judge ourselves vis-a-vis, -vis, whether it's status symbols or cultural icons or wealth or whatever the case might be. This is not a new thing. This has always been. What has become a new and exacerbated reality in our current world is that now the Joneses used to be whoever lived around you, right? Your neighbors and your coworkers and whoever was in your immediate purview who you actually interacted with, those were the Joneses. Well, who are the Joneses now? Everybody. With social media, the entire world now becomes a Joneses. And so now if humans, which we always did, had a problem with competing and competition and comparison, now it's not just our neighbors and coworkers, it's competing against the entire world. And by the way, you're not competing against people's real lives, you're competing against people's social media lives, their idealized version of themselves. Before the kids vomited, they took that little great picture, and you're like, oh my gosh, their family's perfect, my kids are horrible, and... No one's kids are horrible, but you know what I mean, parents. And we find ourselves at this very dangerous precipice and this sort of dilemma socially. We start competing against others that we see online. We start competing against the vision of people's lives that they project on a screen. And the problem with that is that you're wired differently. 
and you're called differently and you're gifted differently. And if you're not careful, you end up competing against somebody that you were never intended to compete with in the first place because you're gonna be a horrible them because you were created to be a great you. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves limping through life discouraged and frustrated and dejected and just like that swimming race before your competition even began, you realize like the swim against Jason, you never stood a chance. But what if there was a different way? I wanna share a liberating idea with us this morning in the room, watching online, maybe watching later on demand. What if you stopped competing against yourself, against others, and began competing against yourself? What if you stopped competing against others and you began competing against the yourself that you were designed to be all along? What if you stopped the competition against somebody else who's wired differently and gifted differently and called differently with different passions and abilities? What if you stopped being a lineman who's competing against a quarterback and owned your place and role and said, God, help me be the me that you've created me to be? What if we began pursuing living life according to our divine Design, your purpose, your calling, your gifting. Bob Goff, the Christian author, said it like this. You'll never be captured by comparison when you're captivated by purpose. I'm going to say that again. You'll never be captured by comparison when you're captivated by purpose. Today, I want to talk about purpose. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Point number one. We're going to unpack this verse, Ephesians 2.10, and we'll, we'll sort of focus all our time on this one verse, unpacking each segment of it as we go. Point number one is this. We are gods. Everybody say God. Say it like you mean it. God. We are gods. It's where he begins. We find ourselves at this crossroad because everything in our world and everything in our culture is telling us that we are ours. I'm the captain. I'm the CEO. I'm the author. I'm the one running the show. I'm the one making the plans. I'm the one calling the shots. And at the very beginning, Ephesians 2.10 begs the question, am I the author of my own destiny or is God? Paul, the author, human author of Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's workmanship. Now you have a choice in this matter. You can select, I hear you, pastor, reverend, but, but actually it, I got this. You can select, it, it's me. I'm the author. I'm the captain. I'm the one calling the shots. And, and you can make that decision. The problem with that is that you are setting yourself up for a life of anxiety, worry, fear, trepidation, and ultimately frustration because we are not the best drivers of our own destiny. Can I get an amen? Somebody who found that out the hard way. It's like driving through South Florida when the snowbirds all get here. You're like, who, who can drive? That's humans with our own lives. Anybody else? No, none of y'all feel that? It's like, praise them. But if you select God is the author, it frees you up emotionally. What this ends up doing is it takes the pressure off. You realize, okay, God is the one doing the work. God is the one setting things up. Ultimately, where this life goes is not fundamentally on me and my abilities to make the right call, to say the right things, to do the right things, to not mess it up. 
It's not on me, it's on God. And as a result, when you realize and own the reality that it's not fundamentally on you, it's on him, it enables you to live, like Jesus said, with a yoke that's easy and a burden that's light. Peace and joy come from this liberating reality that we are God's. We're his. Romans 12 says it like this. For by the grace given to me, Paul says, I, I, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. I don't know if there's a better verse to fly in the face of pop culture psychology. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. Paul continues in Ephesians 4 along the same line. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely, what did it say? Humble. Sit down. Be humble. Some of y'all filled it in. Sorry. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. This God center, this foundational starting point that we are God's is the antidote for the pride disease that wreaks havoc on our souls. I know we feel in moments of confidence like we got this, but we realize in moments of hitting the wall, we don't. And we weren't designed to. We are God's. But it gets better. You're like, oh, all right, John, I'm, I'm his, but how does he feel about me? Which leads us to the next word in this verse. We are God's workmanship. Everybody say workmanship. We are God's workmanship, Paul says. As my mom astutely put and stole notes from my sermon, the Greek word here, anybody know the Greek word for this one? Poema. You know what it means? It comes from where we get the English word poem. It means that we are, we literally did not collaborate on this, but apparently somebody, come on somebody, collaborated on this one. The idea here in the original language is we are, we are a masterpiece. We are a handiwork. We are a work of art from a great designer. We are his poema, his workmanship, beloved, deeply valued and valuable. Now, some of this connects in our current cultural moment, but there are nuances where God is infinitely wiser and shows us our true frame. I stumbled into a book called The Power of Regret by Daniel Pink, an author that has great insights sociologically and in cognitive psychology. And, and he sort of goes in about the book to talk about the redemptive potential that is there in regret if you use regret appropriately. Very fascinating read. What he goes on to talk about is that basically self-condemnation, you know, negative self-talk, these internal monologue of like, I'm horrible, I'm bad, I can't do it. Like when we beat ourselves up, that's completely unhelpful. It doesn't motivate you to be better. It doesn't motivate you to do better. It just pushes you into the dirt. He says self-condemnation is completely unhelpful. A lot of us would say, duh. Here's what was unique about his findings. He said, however, self-esteem, puffing yourself up, is also equally ineffective and unhelpful. Now, this is where it got fascinating. We live in a cultural moment where culturally we would probably all jump on the idea of, yeah, 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 negative self-talk, it's horrible, like uh, self-condemnation, that's bad. And so the counter to that culturally is well you don't push yourself down you got to do what build yourself up you got to push yourself up and, and what they have found what these neuroscientists and, and what these psychiatrists found is what you don't act if you're just trying to pump yourself up it doesn't work what you need is not more self-confidence in some sort of overinflated nay way what the book says is you need self-compassion 
One quote from the book says you need to make it a point to give yourself the same compassion that you would give someone else. They go on in the book to describe that this overinflated sense of self-confidence doesn't work because you know you got issues. You know you're not a reliable source. So if you're like, man, I'm amazing. I'm the best. Just get in front of the mirror and tell yourself, I got this. I'm the best. I'm the man. And, and in your own self, that you have this cognitive dissonance where you're like, I am not the best. I'm not the man. I make dumb decisions. And you find yourself in this tension whereby you know you are not telling yourself the truth. And it doesn't work. But you do need someone to pump you up. And you do need encouragement from some source. So what do we do if self-condemnation is wrong and just telling ourselves we're amazing doesn't scratch the itch either? How do we stay encouraged? How many of you think God has an answer for that one? He's so smart. Look at what it says in Proverbs 27. It says this, let someone else praise you and not your own mouth an outsider and not your own lips. See, you do not, you will not make it in life if you are, if your job is solely to be your own hype man. You need self-compassion, amen, but you actually need to hear words of encouragement from other people if you're gonna make it in the long haul. This is why we have community, why we harp on this idea of microchurches, but it's not just people. You actually need to hear words of life and encouragement from God himself, and here's the great news. You don't need to pump yourself up, friends. God already has. You don't need to find positive things to say about yourself in some overinflated way that makes it a caricature where you know you're not telling the truth. God can tell you the truth about you, and by the way, his truths about you are absolutely beautiful and stunning. You wanna hear some of them? I wanna speak some of these truths of God from scripture over your life, and I'm praying even this very moment for any of us that have been struggling with self-condemnation and self-doubt, you're watching online in Guyana, I'm praying that the very words of God himself would permeate not just your mind, but your heart. I want you to hear it from God himself right now. Here's what God says about you. He says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He says you're the apple of his eye. He says that you were divinely constructed while you were still in your mother's womb with destiny, purpose, and good plans to bring about flourishing on this earth and a smile on the face of God. He says that you're so loved that every hair of your head has been numbered, which is easier for some of y'all than some of us. <laughs> with destiny and purpose before you were even born, he says, you're so loved that there is nothing, no foolish decision, no shame coming from earth, no power and blunder on earth and no scheme or power of hell is able to separate you from the great love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. He says that you were so loved by God that he sent what was most valuable to him to be separated, to die, so that you might experience life and flourishing. He says that you are enough, warts and all. He says that you are his workmanship. He said, all right, Pastor John, that's, that's, that's great. So why am I here? I'm here, I'm loved, awesome. Why am I here? Which goes to the next segment of the verse. We are God's and we are God's workmanship but we are God's workmanship created in Jesus for good works. 
We are God's workmanship created in Jesus for good works. Now, I have to note that in this framework, your being precedes your doing, meaning it starts with identity and who you are is who you are and what you do is what you do. Do you guys understand the difference on those two things? If you wrap yourself up in your doing, if you can't do the doing anymore, you have an identity crisis. If who you are is who you are just because of who you are, now you can do out of a freedom because you're already accepted before you did anything. This makes a huge difference. The, the being precedes the doing, the order matters, but you were created to do. You work, oh, some of us doers need to give an emphatic amen to that. You're like, oh, thank you, God. You were created to do. We are simultaneous Mary and Martha's, if you know that biblical analogy here. I, fascinating research on this one. I kind of geek out on some of the neuroscience. Alan Kelsey, who's con considered the foremost expert on the StrengthsFinders assessment. How many of you are familiar with or have taken the Clifton StrengthsFinders assessment? It's sort of a leadership personality profile. Maybe you'll take it at your job, your business. Maybe you've taken it because you're a nerd like me. Very fascinating insights. Uh, Alan Kelsey is considered considered the premier expert or one of them uh, throughout the world on the StrengthsFinders assessment, so much so that he created an additional resource co called Strengths-Based Marriages. So taking the findings of StrengthsFinders, it's a great book if you're wanting to do some investment in your marriage, Strengths-Based Marriages. And uh, I got to hear him speak several years ago, and he was talking about marriage. I, I heard about it in a different vein because I'm like, this is fascinating just for everybody, married or non-married. Here's what he said. He said, you know, we came up with this assessment and we feel like there's so much value to it because as we have developed when it comes to cognitive neuroscience and the ability to study the brain, what we have found is that when you are born, you're sort of born with all these roads. They're called synaptic pathways. You've got all these roads. Picture two-lane roads all throughout your brain. But as you age and as you mature, ideally with age, uh, you get to around your late 30s or right around the age of 40. He said, and all of a sudden, inexplicably, in humans across cultures and continents, the two-lane roads in your brain start to consolidate. And what your brain begins to do is what used to be unused or rarely used two-lane roads, they take those lanes and they make three-lane roads and four-lane roads. They take two-lane roads and they begin to make super highways in your brain. Translation, you were literally biologically wired for a purpose. And your entire brain shifts to accommodate those unique things God has created you for. This is incredible. This is, the more we study about science is one of the reasons I love digging into some of the science. The more we study about science, the more we're like, oh, so you mean we were God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance for us to walk in and we're literally wired to do specific things that are prepared in advance and then our brain catches up and helps us do them? Yes. Yes. You were created for a purpose. You were created with divine design. There are some things that you're just not good at and you'll probably never be good at them for the rest of your life because somebody else is, that's okay. But there are some things God has so uniquely wired you for that you can't help but be a superstar and you don't even try. And those are gifts from God. And if you spent your life bemoaning who you're not, what a tragedy rather than embracing who you are. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance. You were created to be loved by God, cherished by God, valued by God, and you were created to do. And you're never gonna feel right until you're doing what you were created to do, and you'll never have peace until you're living on purpose. It just won't happen. Proverbs 29 says it like this. 
where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. This prophetic vision is key because especially as Americans and North Americans, we like the idea of being the captains of our own destiny and we like to get up a vision board and vision ear, but, but this word casting off restraint, this is the same word used in Exodus 32 where Israel, it says, casts off restraint and begins to worship this golden calf. If left to our own devices, we will inevitably miss God and create a form of godliness but lacking the power in our own earth mentality. Which is why you just don't, you don't just need a vision or a vision board. You need God. You need prophetic vision. We've been talking on this metaphor of bathing things in prayer, whether it's your VIP cards or whatever situation, your business, whatever you're called to. We saturate things in prayer because we don't just need the mind of earth. We need the mind of God. And we need the heart of God. You need more than a vision board. You need God. You need prophetic vision. You need God's vision. And if we're hearing this wrong, it might feel like another rule, another law, and we might feel like, great, now here's another reason I'm a loser. Thanks, pastor. Open house. But you're hearing it wrong. What this means is that God has done all the heavy lifting. God has prepared the good works in advance. God is the one giving the vision. God is the one who's given the gifts. God is the one who created our brains to specifically focus on things. God is doing all of the work. All we have to do is be humble and willing to say yes. And if we can get to that point, I've got great news for you, friends. There's an incredible life awaiting you. Not an easy one, but a rich, fulfilling, and deeply valuable one. Friend, you were created. You are God's created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance. And maybe you think to yourself, greatness. He's got all these amazing things for me, and I know myself already, I'm gonna blow it. <laughs> like, if, there, if there's a way, God's like, set me up. He's like, here it is, here's a spike, and I'm gonna bend stiller it into someone's face and blow it. Like, awesome, Pastor John. I already know it. My track record has proven to me, if God's done these awesome things and he's setting me up, I'm so prone to miss it. We all kind of feel that to some degree. I remember talking with Michelle, who's our missions director. She spearheads a lot of stuff that we're doing in Guyana with the church plant, and she's such a gift here in South Florida. And, uh, and I remember talking with Michelle when we were having a conversation about her joining the staff team, and, and she was passionate, and she was clearly gifted and clearly called. And, and we sat down at the hub at our office space, and, and she said, you know, John, I've for a very long time, I know and have known that God called me to do something like this. And, and I was on track for a little while and then, and then I stopped listening. And then I stopped obeying. And then there was a season of my life where I feel like I absolutely, through my own knowing better free will and volition, disqualified myself from the call God had placed on my life. John, I knew it. She said, I'm, I'm just so, so incredibly grateful that God has not disqualified me, but he's given me another chance. And this is what she said. And from now on, even if I'm terrified, I'm saying yes. 
And I've watched her do that over and over and over again as country doors opened up and ministers of finance doors opened up and opportunities in the nation opened up and things here locally opened up over and over and over again. I've watched Michelle say yes. Here's my point. The great news for our souls is that your ability to miss it does not supersede God's ability to redeem it. All you've got to be willing to do is say yes. This is, by the way, if you're like, man, here, welcome the, all these church people, man, they don't know all these songs. They, they look so spiritual with their windshield washer thing they do. And man, I can never be like these people. You know what these people are? You know what this person is? A hot mess that Jesus is putting back together. Scripture says a righteous person will fall seven times, but you know what they do? Seven times they get back up. It's not about the number seven. Seven's about completion. It's a Hebrew idea, blah, 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 blah. The point of this is that God knows our frame. He knows who he, knows who he recruited for his kickball team, and he didn't expect an all-star. Thank God. He's just looking for someone that's going to keep showing up. God, I, knew I, I know I striked out last time, but, but, but I'm here now. God, I know I didn't even show up for the game, but I'm here now. God, I know last week I forgot to wash my uniform, and it was really dirty and kind of smelled like B.O., but I'm here now. God, I might not nail it every time, but I'm showing up. That's all he needs. That's all he needs. We are God's. And we are God's workmanship. And we have been created in Jesus for good works that God prepared. That was a cool little echo there. Wow. <laughs> that God prepared in advance for us to walk in. You won't nail it every time. Just don't give up. Just don't throw in the towel. Just keep showing up. Thinking on Ephesians 6, talking to a friend this week, and, and it's been a challenging season for, for one of my dear friends. And, and he's just like, John, I'm so tired. I'm so done. I said, bro, just show up. We'll do Jesus and his people. We'll wrap around you. We'll carry you. We'll, we'll do everything else. Just show up. Because sometimes that's all you can do. We are God's workmanship created in Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in. Here's the application. Every time we approach the scriptures as followers of Jesus, we like to ask two questions. Number one, God, what are you saying? And number two, what do you want me to do about it? That second question is vital and the differentiation between theoretical Christians or believers in theory and disciples who are trying to walk this out in praxis in our real lives. Here's what I want us to do this week. We, divined, we designed a tool to help you in your sort of divinely guided quest of self-discovery called the Divine Design Assessment. There's a QR code that's for it right here. You can scan that QR code. It'll take you to a file in Dropbox and I encourage you to do that right now. If you have the Greenhouse app, it's also there in the app under the sermon for today, and you can access it there. You can fill it out, make a copy, print it out, do however you do, but at least get the code there, and we'll post that on social media, I'm sure, so you'll be able to find that as well. Basically, this compiles some of the personality profiles, biblical and cultural, that we've used for years upon years, decades, in our discipleship and helping people discover their design and compiled it all in one place. Let me walk you through briefly the value of some of these tests and where I found them to be most helpful. 
You'll see on that divine design assessment what's called the spiritual gifts test. This is pulling in spiritual gifts that God gives by his spirit to people. This comes from 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12. I have found this test to me most helpful when asking the question, God, how have you designed me to help and be a blessing to people in church settings? That be, might be micro church or macro church like we do here gathered on Sunday or micro church, which happens all throughout the tri-county area during the week. On there, we have what we call the APEST test that comes from Ephesians chapter four, the divinely constructed personality profiles, apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. I have found this test and we have found this test to be most helpful in discovering general calling. General calling. As I mentioned earlier, we put the strengths finders assessment on there. This is most helpful in professional settings for getting a sense of who you are and who you're not so you could focus on your strengths rather than trying to focus on your weaknesses, which is a poor way to operate in life and very frustrating. We've got the Enneagram on there, which we found to be most helpful in interpersonal relationships. Some of these are Bible tests. Some of these are just psychology tests that people have created. We've put some helpful questions in there, like what words or prophecies do you have from God? What are your passions? What is your burden? What do you deeply value? And this week, I'm giving you homework. You're like, great. This is supposed to be church, not school. Okay, this is good, valuable homework. Homework for your soul, all right? Not just for your mind. We want healthy souls. I want you this week to do this, to take this divine design assessment and then take those results and maybe you just do one of the tests or two of the tests that you feel are most apropos for you in this season of life. Take the test and then begin to bathe it in prayer. Then begin to pray into that. Okay, God, here are the results that I got. This is not Bible. This is not scripture. These are just helpful tools. Then you take it to the master and say, Jesus, here's what I got. Here are my results. What do you have to say about this? Is there anything you want me to start doing? Is there anything you want me to stop doing? Is there anything that I need to go further in and really learn and grow at that you've given me raw talents, but I have not yet cultivated? After you've bathed it in prayer, then run it by your community. Microchurch would be the perfect place after taking this assessment this week to go into your microchurch. Maybe when you break out in your tiny groups and say, hey, here are one of the things on my test. Uh, can you guys help me? Do you, is this accurate? Like, do you, do you see this in me? Is this, is this off? And, and get feedback from people who know you more deeply and love you as well. At the end of the day, you're either gonna live by default or you're gonna live by design. Those are the two ways that you'll go about life. If you choose to live by default, you're gonna drift into whatever competition you happen to stumble into, into the moment, and you will live life frustrated, tired, and dejected. But if you choose to live by design, you can walk into, you can discover through God's grace and his spirit, a tailor-made path created for you by the designer where you live life simply competing against the best version of yourself who God has designed, called, and gifted you to be. And my prayer for us this morning, for us watching online over in Guyana, is that you would choose to live by design. I'm praying that we would decide today, I will focus on, I will work on, I will set my sights on who God has created me to be, not perseverate on who he has not. That we'd escape the comparison trap and find freedom, easy yoke, and light burden in the calling of Jesus. That freedom, I mean, it's absolutely game-changing. And as we get ready to close here, I'll ask the worship team to come, and don't leave yet. We're gonna close in a final chorus of worship together. 
I want us to consider the cross and how this has been made possible. Paul says we are God's workmanship created in Jesus. This is all found in Jesus. What happens in the moral of our story is that there's this thing called sin. Sin is any path, any way, any decision, any mindset, any action that goes contrary to God's way. And by the way, God's way is what he designed for our flourishing because he loves us. And what sin does is sin distorts us. It makes this big promise that things are going to be great, that things are going to be amazing, that things are going to be awesome. But like the Miami Dolphins football team, it does not deliver on those promises. Although this year, Lord, come on, somebody. Some of y'all, you're like, that's my favorite part of the sermon, preach. Sin distorts us. It gets to us to a point where we can't bear to look at ourselves, where we can't help but compare ourselves, where we can't bring ourselves to truly assess ourselves because we know something's off. But the grace of God, it delivers us. It delivers us from comparison. It delivers us from unhealthy competition. It delivers us from us so that we can fully become us, the us that he designed and created us to be. I'm gonna close with this story. I uh, heard about this a while ago and brought it back to mind this week. There's this Japanese art called Kintsugi. Kintsugi. It literally means to join with gold. What it is, is it's an ancient form of art where you take broken pieces of pottery. It was developed by some ancient shogun who had this favorite teapot. And as tradition, the legend goes, it broke. And he was like, no, we got to put, I love this thing. Some of y'all have a favorite thing. You know that feeling. He's like, I love this thing. And so he commissioned these artisans to put it back together. And, and the first go around, they didn't do it quite right. And he said, no, 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 I'm fine if it looks broken. I still love it. And so they took the imperfections and they lined them with gold to make them beautiful. The idea here is that there can come beauty from brokenness in the hands of a careful master craftsman. And I was like, whew, that'll preach. Because friend, it's not just true about broken pottery. It's true about broken people. If you walked in this morning, our vision is to help ordinary people become passionate followers of Jesus because we were a mess and sometimes still are. But he's putting us back together. For some of you in this room, I want you to just think back for a moment and maybe you've been wrestling in your own mind. Maybe you've been wrestling in your own thoughts. Maybe you've been wrestling in your own head and you're so in touch with your inabilities and you're so in touch with your errors and you're so in touch with your imperfections. And I need to remind you that the moral of our story is there is a master craftsman in heaven who out of the broken pieces of our life is making something beautiful, lining it with gold if we're just willing to place our lives back into his hands. And I'm praying for somebody that maybe has felt all the weight of the world to make it happen and all the pressure of the world to, to, to get, my, get my family together and then, I, okay, that's finally working. Let me get over here to the business. And then you start pl- spinning that plate and that plate starts falling. You're running back and forth and back and forth. And you're like, I can't do this any longer. Great. Because you weren't designed to. And for those of us that get to a point where we're humble and willing enough to say, my life is broken in pieces that I cannot fix and place it in his hands.
He's able to take the broken pottery of our lives and make something beautiful out of it. Through the sacrifice of Jesus and through what he did on the cross, making reconciliation, allowing us to be made right with God out of our brokenness to make us whole, it allows us to walk in our divine design, design destiny and purpose because while I may be sinful and miss the mark and fall short, God is a redeemer who puts me back together. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, I know this is true because I've lived it. It has been the prevailing experience of my life and I'm praying right now for your people gathered in the room, watching online, that there would be even a spark of hope that jumps up and says, this might be true. At least I want to give it a shot. Lord, would you by your spirit move in our hearts in such a way where you stir faith, where your kindness leads us to change our minds, leads us in repentance to turn towards you. If you're here this morning and and you're, you're just tired, You've been trying it on your own. You're trying to make everything seem perfect. You're you're like this broken piece of pottery that's, that's putting super glue back together. And you're like, maybe no one will notice. And you're like, I'm so tired. I'm so done. Hear the words of Jesus. Come to me, Jesus said, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is peace and joy available in, in Jesus that this world cannot provide. Said, John, that sounds great. How do I get that? You ask. Even right now, if you're here in the room or watching online and you would like to turn to Jesus and make him the master craftsman, place your life in his hands, make him Lord and leader, I just want you right now to raise your hand and say, That's me. That's me. I need to make that decision. Awesome. 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 All over the room, online, you could you could raise your hand right there, digitally even. Wherever you're at, in the privacy of your chair, your living room, your coffee shop, wherever you might be. I want you to utter a prayer to God in your own words, something along the lines of, Jesus, you got my attention. I need your help. I'm so tired of trying to do this on my own. I I give up. I surrender. Here's my broken life. I place it in your hands. And if you could do something with it, I'm all yours. Maybe you're here this morning and and you felt so trapped in comparison. You felt so stuck in competition with people that you do not even know, people that you don't even like, and you're like, why am I competing with them? I don't even like them. But you can't get out, friend. There is liberation for your soul available in Jesus. If you'd like to be rescued from the comparison trap, if you'd like to be rescued by Jesus and stop living in default and instead lean into your divine design, ask him. Say, God, I I trust you. You made me. I'm your workmanship. You don't make junk. Help me, teach me to love who you created me to be. Help me to walk in self-compassion, to give myself grace like you give me. 
teach me to be who you created me to be. Help me to be who you created me to be.